Hey all, welcome back to the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I'm Darren. Today we have a great guest, Chef Helen Rennie from Helen's Cooking Kitchen. She does cooking classes at her home and also has a great YouTube channel. I'll be right back with Helen. Smoking, grilling, getting hot and hotter, sous vide and chilling from fire and water. Welcome back to the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I'm Darren. I'm your host. And today I've got a special guest, Chef Helen Rennie. She is the founder of Helen's Cooking School, and she also has her own YouTube channel. Helen, welcome to the podcast. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, Darren. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Yes, I'm Helen from Helen's Kitchen Cooking School in Boston, Massachusetts. And I also make cooking tutorials on YouTube. One of the when I first started investigating sous vide, some of your videos are ones that popped up, and I got addicted to your channel. And I think it's because of the the way you teach is very commonsensical, I guess if that's a word. Um, and I'm, I'm very attracted to that. And um, I've watched you know a ton of your videos, and I whenever I get a notification of, of a video of yours pops up, I, I go and watch it, no matter what it is. So. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, the whole YouTube experience has been so rewarding because I've met people through it that we've connected, I've learned from them. Um, And I know that I teach cooking, but I also learn a lot from all my students and my viewers. Um, I believe that there is no one right way to do things. There are many wrong ways, but there's always room to improve. There is always an opportunity to learn something, whether it's traditional or innovative. You know, I'm up for any cooking learning. Well, and I think that's what makes the better teachers. Um, I just had Meathead Goldwyn from Amazing Ribs on last week ago. I have to listen to that episode. And he's, you know, just like me, you've got to be a a really, you know, good learner or wanting to learn to be able to teach. And I think – the people that get caught in a rut or, you know, could only do things a certain way, they're not the best teachers at all. So, <laughs> Yeah, I think that lots of chefs get somewhat irritated with home cooks because, um, you know, they've been doing something for, say, 20 years and they do it with their eyes closed and they don't even know which pieces of information a normal person is missing. They just make these assumptions that, oh, your knife is perfectly sharp and sure, you know how to do a claw grip, but that's not the case at all. Most people, their knives aren't perfectly sharp and they don't know how to do a claw grip or they know, but they struggle because it is not a natural thing to do. Um, So because I um, come to all this definitely from a home cook perspective, um, I think it's very easy for me to relate to somebody who is stuck on some technique um, that they might have seen that, yeah, you should be doing it this way, but how do you really do it that way? All right. So let's get into just beginning here. Who, uh, who are you? Where are you from? Where do you live? And all that. Uh, so <laughs> I have very complicated answers to all those questions. I think this is the number one question people ask me is where I'm from. Well, where do you think I'm from based on my accent? Oh, I know where you're from from your accent. So. 
okay. What's your guess? I, I've I've listened to your you know I've watched your oh, channel yeah, and yeah, stuff, yeah, so yeah, I know yeah, the yeah, answers. Yeah. But... Oh, okay. okay. So yes, I'm from. Um, so the question, the answer everybody wants me to say is that yes, I'm from Moscow, Russia. I was born there, and I lived there for the first 13 years of my life. Uh, but that's also misleading because. When you say something like this, people expect certain cultural know-how and culinary know-how. And if I had to answer this question, like if it was my choice how to answer it, I'd say that I'm from Boston because this is where I lived most of my life. And I'm most comfortable with contemporary American cooking than I am with Russian cooking. And, um, you know, if I went back to Russia now, I think I'd probably feel like a tourist, which I should do sometimes. It would be a wonderful experience. But um, yes, I'm mostly lived my life in the U.S. And um, I did not start with cooking as my first profession. Uh, my first profession was a usability engineer. I studied computer science in college um, because, I mean, I was a poor immigrant. I needed a real job, not like I didn't even realize that doing something with the food was a possible profession. It was not even on the radar. So I always loved to cook, but cooking is something, you know, you do at home. It's not something you get a job in. And um, so I finished college and I got a job and I was getting very good, very well-paid jobs in the software world, but I was absolutely miserable. <laughs> and it's not that I did not enjoy designing interfaces. Designing interfaces, it's a little bit like teaching. I love that part, but I did not love being part of this large companies where I felt like this little ant in an ant farm that my part was this tiny puny piece. It might be of a product that will make millions of dollars, but it's this tiny puny piece. And sometimes you work on something and you work on it and then they change direction and it doesn't end up shipping. And I tried working in small companies too, which was around early 2000s, like yeah, about the year 2000, 2001, when lots of them were going under. This was that dot-com bust. <laughs> so although some of that work was kind of interesting, it also wasn't very long-lasting. So, um, well, so I had this, um, what now people have midlife crisis. I guess people of my generation moved it to their mid-twenties, <laughs> mid-twenties life crisis about what do I want to do with my life? And um, I really love to cook. And my husband suggested that I should teach a cooking class. And that sounded totally ridiculous to me. I'm like, well, how will I teach a cooking class? And the reason he thought of that was because we started taking wine tasting classes at the Cambridge Center for Adult Education in Cambridge. Um, and we loved that. And we took a cooking class out of curiosity. And, you know, it was like a guy teaching a bunch of home cooks how to uh, grill steaks and lamb chops and stuff like that. And Jason's like, you could do that. I'm like, but I am not a chef. You know, I don't have any degree in this. You know, I've never worked in a restaurant. And he said, well, try it. Just write the proposal, see what will happen. And I thought they'd never accept the proposal. 
but they accepted the proposal. And then I was like, oh, no, I have to actually do this. So I did it. The first class I ever taught was called One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish. It was a class on fish. And it's still my favorite class to teach to this day. I still teach it. It has evolved a lot because I have learned a lot. Uh, But it's still a class about fish just because I found that fish is this ingredient that people were surprisingly afraid of. Um, And when we moved to Boston, there was so much fantastic fish that I would just cook every fish I could get my hands on. And just through experimentation, I taught myself how to do it. And um, that was a very popular class because everybody wants to eat more fish, but they don't know how. And um, I had such a good experience teaching that I thought, I want to do more of this. Like, can you do this as a job? (laughs) And um, I wanted, I thought if I'm going to teach cooking, I have to learn to do it seriously. And I wanted to get a job in a restaurant. Um, There was no way for me to go to culinary school. My husband was in grad school at the time and we had to pay a mortgage in Boston, which is not uh, good. Uh, So, And besides, I heard very mixed things about going to culinary school. So many people went to culinary school, spent like the same as they would spend on on a degree in business or computer science, then get a job making minimum wage, absolutely hate it, have no holidays, work uh, ungodly hours. And they're like, why did I do this? So I definitely didn't want to go to culinary school, but I wanted to learn to cook for real. And at the time... Uh, Now, this was long ago when blogs were a really new thing. This is before YouTube. This is when normal websites are already pretty common, but blogs are a very niche thing. Like very, very few people even know what that is. But I was reading lots of blogs, and this one blog I was reading was called Restaurant Slave. It was this girl in the software industry in California who wanted to learn to cook, and she persuaded one of her friends, who was a restaurant chef, to give her a job for free. Like, she would not get paid. Because believe it or not, it's very difficult to get a restaurant to take you if you only want to be there two, three nights a week. Um, They still have to pay workmen's comp on you, so you're a liability. Like it's not when people say, "Oh, you're going to work for free." Of course, all the restaurants will want you. I'm like, nope. (laughs) So uh, it wasn't easy to find the restaurant. I called so many places, and I wanted to do it in a place that I really thought highly of. I didn't want to do it in a place whose food I didn't really appreciate it. So eventually, I did get that internship, and for a year. After my software job at night, I would go to that restaurant and chop like 25 pounds of onions and debone sardines and do anything and everything they gave me to do. And that was an amazing experience. Um, That's how I learned my knife skills. And I kept teaching. In parallel with that, I was teaching on weekends. Um, and I, you know, that turned me into a much better teacher, much more knowledgeable teacher. And eventually my husband was close to finishing up his PhD. And we decided that when he's done, I'm going to have a year when I try this out for real and to try it out for real. I wanted to do it in my house instead of in that horrible 
you know, community kitchens are never great. When it's nobody's kitchen, when, it, when it's everybody's kitchen, it's nobody's kitchen. You know, you show up, there's like one skillet, you bring all your own knives because there's not a single sharp knife. Um, and so I wanted to do it at my house. And um, I gave it a shot. I really didn't think anybody would come. But I built up this tiny little um, email list of people from my classes in community centers. And I sent them an email saying, I'm going to teach a class at my house. It was actually an apartment. (laughs) Uh, Would anybody want to come? It's a fish class on this date. And it filled up. And so I thought, okay, so I can do this. And I started teaching. I still kept my software job and I taught on weekends. And once I built up enough clientele, I quit my software job and I have been doing this full time since 2006. Wow. Well, thank, well, well thanks for being on, Helen. That that fills up all our time. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That's like a little more of a bio. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, and I want to back up a little bit because um, when you first started your, your first class, you said that was in like a community center. So that was something where uh, your local community center has, you know, little, uh, you know, classes that people can come in and teach. Now, mm-hmm. w- was that something that you charged for or was that something that just uh, you just did it? Uh, I mean, h- how does that work? I- I'm not really oh, familiar with it. Oh, absolutely. So they do charge for those classes. The community center does. And they charge very similar to what I charge now. But what they pay instructors is peanuts. So they pay you very, very little. So it wasn't completely volunteering but it was close to volunteering. Now, but you you didn't have to have a big, long resume of teaching experience or... No, that was the beautiful thing. Yes. Um, You know, as long as you could write a reasonable proposal and as long as they needed that class, like if they already had a French class and you wrote proposal for a French class, they'd say no. But as long as they needed a fish class at that moment, so it was just luck, Right place, right time. So how did, you said that uh, the fish class was the first one you taught, and did it it seem to fill up every single time you taught it there at the community center? Yes, the fish class was the most popular one. So that was just a lot of luck, you know, that it happened so that I wanted to teach about fish, and it happened so that people wanted to learn about fish. Yeah, I think that is, like you said, it's one of the more intimidating proteins that people are afraid of because it is so, you know, uh, fragile. Um, you gotta, you know, hit the temperatures perfect. And I think that's one of the reasons why sous vide is so good for fish. So, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Fish is also expensive. So people feel like, well, if I ruin this $20 a pound piece of protein, it's hard to convince yourself to try again because it's very expensive to keep trying if you don't know what you're doing. Right. And, and it's easy to mess up because it is so fragile and, um, you know, mm-hmm. it is, people do get intimidated by it. I know I do. And, and that's, it's not really one of the reasons why that I don't make a lot of it. It's, you know, price and my family doesn't like a whole lot of fish, you know, they like certain kinds. So I, I tend to lean mm-hmm. towards that, but, um, but I know there is, um, there is that factor of people do kind of shy away from it 
because they're afraid mm -hmm. of it. So, but I think that was the perfect, perfect class to teach to yeah, get started. It was a perfect way to get started teaching. And uh, after that fish class, people have been asking me if I can do that for meat. Like, can you do this for meat? Can you do this for chicken? Can you do this for vegetables? Um, because they liked my approach of teaching patterns. Um, very often when people come to a cooking class, or if they watch a YouTube video, uh, the wording they use, what they hope to get out of it, is to pick up a few tips and tricks. And I don't really like that wording for tips and tricks because to me, um, a tip or a trick is something that's applicable in very few situations, in a very specific situation. Like um, I, I was just teaching a vegetables class and I showed them how to cut cherry tomatoes by putting them between two plastic lids. Uh, so that if you're trying to cut them in half, you don't cut each tomato in half. You sandwich it between two lids from like deli containers and slide the knife between them. And everybody's like, oh, wow, that's the best thing ever. And I'm thinking, yeah, but that's a trick. You know, that's one of those things that it's fun to watch and go, why didn't I think of that? But it doesn't apply to anything else. Well, maybe grapes, but it's not an overarching pattern of cooking. And I like to teach patterns. So um, with fish, for example, once you understand how doneness works, you can apply it to any type of fish. Um, and so in my meat class, I teach meat patterns. In vegetable class, I teach vegetable patterns, etc. Right. That's methods, you know, methods over just tricks and tips. You know, tips and tricks out there that can help you with things. But if you don't have the overall knowledge of the the methods and how they work and how they can work together with with different foods and and stuff uh, it, you know you might as well give up so that's the, mm -hmm. the important things are you know the things that you teach the basics especially the knife skills the you know the different cooking methods and and how they work and why they work uh, you know that's the basics that people really need to know before they start mm -hmm. really looking at tips and tricks, you know, because. Exactly, exactly. Because that's the foundation. Yeah. That if you don't have that, um, it's very hard to, it's very hard to cook. Yeah, you can't cook in a kitchen with just tips and tricks, <laughs> you know. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I totally agree. So what, um, let's talk about how that grew when you started doing them at home. I mean, was that a really slow process? Did it kind of come, you know, did you bring a lot of those students that were at the community center to you to your house and all that? So I brought some students, uh, but eventually it grew again. This is pure luck being at the right time at the right place. Uh, back then, I was located really close to Boston. Now I live way in the suburbs, and um, it was not a thing back then to teach classes in your house. Like nowadays, it's all over the place. But back then, um, I think there might have been one other place like that, but most of it, you were going to adult ed facilities, again, with very questionable facilities. So um, it was fairly easy to fill just because of Google. Like, you know, I was, because I came from software industry, I was pretty good with software, with the search engine optimization. And my husband helped me some with that. How do I make my website findable? So if you Google cooking classes, Boston, my website comes up. So 
I brought some students with me, and then I was Googleable. And you know, in this day and age, that's very important. And people were just finding me that way. Googleable. Googleable is a word now. <laughs> of course, that all changed when I moved into the suburbs. And that changed when YouTube redid how they do search. Uh, they made it very uh, geography specific. So I'm no longer Boston. Like if you Google cooking classes Boston, they don't consider where I am to be Boston. So that moved me way down in the search results. So yeah, I ran my business close to Boston for two years and I thought I had it good. Everything was fine. Classes were filling uh, great. And then we moved into the suburbs because we decided to have children. <laughs> and um, everything changed because Google search became local uh, around that time. When you Google cooking classes Boston, they tried to figure out where are you located and where is Boston and where we were according to Google, wasn't really Boston anymore. And um, I, although I had lots of returns, students who were coming back after taking a class, you couldn't really fill all the classes just with returns. You needed some new students too. And that is how my YouTube channel got started, is that I needed some PR tool. Um, I couldn't really afford proper advertising. Everybody's like, why didn't you just put up ads on NPR? And I'm like, I called NPR. Have you any idea how much that costs? <laughs> so yeah, for a tiny little business like mine, it's completely unaffordable. And so I was trying to find some way to get more exposure. So I started doing YouTube. Yeah, and... and I've watched a lot of a lot of your YouTube um, videos, and they're very detailed. Very, like I said, a lot of them are necessary. I think for people that are trying to learn how to cook, especially for the first time, a lot of the things that you teach and the way you teach them, you teach them like a like somebody who is a great teacher who likes to learn things. So you know how to teach to people who like to learn. So how you like to be taught. So. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. I teach, you know, when I started cooking, I felt it was really hard to get good information that was detailed enough for me to succeed on the first or second try. Very often, there were so many bits and pieces missing from the instruction. And so I try to be very detailed so that people know exactly what to do. I'm one of the people that don't think you need to have a degree from a culinary school to be able to teach cooking because myself, I've never been to culinary school, but I, I spent about 12 years in, in the industry, restaurant industry in my younger days. And I've cooked pretty much my whole life. I cook all our meals for, you know, for my family and I do a lot of big get togethers and stuff. So I've always been learning new things and that's kind of what led me into you know, doing the sous vide and mixing it with barbecue and all that. Wow, your family is so lucky because very often people who cook professionally, they don't cook for their families. So Well, but I haven't cooked professionally in a long time. I, I, you know, that was my younger years. <laughs> so uh -huh. and last, you know, when I was like in my mid-20s, I started in the banking industry. So so that's when cooking went back to being oh, wow. being a hobby and not, not a professional. <laughs> and, and then food industry. Okay. 
but yeah, it's very interesting to hear people's life paths. Well, I kind of figured that I, I really couldn't support a family, you know, in the restaurant industry unless I worked weird hours. You know, you got to work, you know, if you want to be a real professional chef, you usually have to work, you know, late at night, you know, and you're, you're oh, there, yeah. you're there from yeah. like, you know, 10 o'clock so you can get, make sure the prep all gets done right. And then you're leaving at 10 o'clock at night. You're really, you know. Yeah. Hours are tough. tough. Hours are tough and the pay is not consummate unless you own your own restaurant or you're a Michelin star chef. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so yeah, but, um, I've always loved cooking. I've been, you know, doing whatever I can, like, like you, I'm a, I'm a learner first, you know, so Mm -hmm. I like to learn and delve into a subject. Um, that's what I did with sous vide. I just delved Mm -hmm. into it. I learned as much as I could, you know, watched, you know, videos from you, Kenji, um, I dug into a lot of the different, you know, sous vide books. And... Yeah, I love Kenji. He's my cooking hero. You know, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but I felt like in the restaurant world, people people weren't too interested in finding new ways of doing it, partially because they had to serve the product quickly, you know. So it was not a great place to... Oh, what are some other ways of doing yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, you know I think I they mean? get caught in a... Ways. They get set in their ways and caught in a rut. And a lot of them too, they get the ego where, you know, this is the way I do it and you can't do it any other way instead of having an open mind of, and I think yeah. that's where people like me and you and, and Kenji that, you know, don't work in the industry, you know, a hundred percent that have that, we can step back and go, look, well, Hey, let's look over the overall big picture instead of having to put out, you know, 200 plates a night, you know, and make them look exactly the same all the time. But yeah. I mean, I, I, I like to delve deep into stuff and then I can, I feel comfortable turning around and I try stuff. I experiment, you know, on my family I and mean, all the time. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're the ones that get all the experiment stuff. Yes. So I'm sure you do the same thing, you know, Hey, I'm trying yeah. something new. You guys got to try this. <laughs> Yeah, half of our dinners are experiments. <laughs> well, and you know, you teaching a class, I'm sure you can do that stuff too, but you still have to teach them, like you said, you got to teach them something that you know definitely, but then you can always my my big thing is yeah. to teach people how to experiment. Right. Right. And how to experiment in a smart way so that right. you can learn something. Like I'm a strong believer that you should be changing one variable and one variable only. Like if you go and change, well, um, I changed the cut of meat and I also changed the temperature and I also changed this other thing. Well, then how are you going to know what made that difference? You're not going to know. And um, I find that it's good. That's like basic scientific method stuff. Um, that really applies in the kitchen too. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I tell people that all the time, especially I have a big Facebook group and, you know, people will say, well, I still have your Facebook group for sous vide stuff and barbecue is fantastic. But you'll have somebody that'll try, well, I tried doing, you know, this sous vide at this temperature and this time and it came out like, you know, bad and I don't like it. So I'm not going to do it again. It's like, well, you can't just do that. <laughs> you know, you can't do it one way, one time, you know, with one piece of meat and do it and then just say the whole method doesn't work because you wouldn't do that with steak. If you burnt a steak cooking it on the, on a cast iron skillet, you burnt it the first time you cook it, you're not going to give up and go, well, that just doesn't work. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And, um, I find that it's very helpful 
not to avoid disasters, because disasters happen all the time. I mean, I mess things up in the kitchen right and left, but to be very specific about what you didn't like about it. Because if a student comes back and says, I tried it, I, I didn't like it, um, you know, how can I help them? Well, what didn't you like? Was it soggy? Was it mushy? Was it too firm? Was it too dry? Um, you know, once you can start getting specific, you can actually fix those problems. But if you just go, I didn't like it, well, <laughs> it's very hard to fix that. Yeah, because a lot of times, believe it or not, you're just dealing with a preconceived, you know, idea or, uh, you know, they're, they're just determined not to like it. And I found that a lot of times in the bar in the barbecue world, you know, when you introduce, you know, another method to use it with barbecue, they, they take offense. <laughs> Oh, well, barbecue, that's like a religion. Yeah, you know? so, you know, you get a lot of those guys that, like, I'm de yeah. they're determined not to like it. And even if they're going to try it, they're going to try it and, and sabotage it so that they can say, well, I tried it and it didn't work, so I'm not going to ever do it again. <laughs> so. Well, that's what's so great about Meathead is that he's not dogmatic. Uh, he's very practical. Uh, he wants it to taste great, but he's open to all different things that might make it taste great. Yeah, you gotta, you know, if you're an overall food lover, you love all methods. You embrace them all, and and know that each method has its own, you know, uh, positives and negatives, and you know, get and learn how to use them. I mean, well, yeah, I find that any sort of recipe development, you're always talking about trade-offs. Uh, very often, I know that people like to say, "Oh, I just made this best chicken ever," and I get it, but there's always a trade-off between tender inside versus crispy outside you know what's good for flavor is not always good for texture and how do you balance those things it's like this constant game uh like being on a seesaw like you want um and that's what sous vide is um all about i felt like with sous vide it solved um a big problem people were having with the texture of their meat you know but it's not also uh, a free free for all. It's not like oh, this is it. We solved all the problems and life is good. It is a trade off, right? If you're getting that level of tenderness, um, you know that outside crispness, browning that will suffer some. It doesn't mean there aren't some good ways to fix it. But you also can't do what you've always always done with browning because that defeats the purpose of sous vide. And, you know, there are clever ways to work around that. Um, but it is always a trade-off. Like, how much tenderness do I want versus how much browning do I want? Yeah, and you get that with all cooking methods. So, all right, mm -hmm. well, yeah. we're going to go ahead and take a quick break here for an ad. And I'll be right back with Chef Helen Rennie. Hey all, I want to welcome again Inkbird as our sponsor for the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. Inkbird has more than just barbecue thermometers and instant read thermometers that I've talked about before. Inkbird just came out with a Wi-Fi sous vide circulator that I've been using for a few weeks now that works pretty good. It has over 1,000 watts of power, has an app that has many times and temps for meats and vegetables, also has onboard times and temps for meats and vegetables. Runs really quiet. Fits most regular sous vide containers that are the size of the Anovas. So check it out. Look below. There's a link 
with a code for 30% off of the Amazon price that makes it under $60 right now. So check out the Inkbird Wi-Fi sous vide circulator in the description below. Back to our program. All right, we're back. And Helen, yeah, we were just we just started to touch on the sous vide cooking method, but I want to talk about other cooking methods that you teach in your class and on YouTube because it's definitely sous vide is part of it. Is some of it I've, I've, I've watched. Like I said, some of the first uh, sous vide videos I watched were some of yours. And, um, mm -hmm. but you also have a lot of other, other things that you touch on. So what, what is the most popular things that you teach in your, in your classes at home? And then, and what are your most popular videos on YouTube? Oh, that's interesting. It, it always surprises me which things are popular. Um, so some of it also depends on what is Food Network doing at the time, because I don't watch any Food Network stuff. I watch a lot of cooking videos on YouTube, but I don't watch normal food TV. And I usually know what they are doing based on how my classes are doing. Like, uh, for example, sous vide, 10 years ago, was impossible to fill a class on sous vide. Right now, it's one of my hottest classes. Um, French pastry, uh, it's the class I call French pastry was because um, nobody knew what pâte à choux was. And I wanted to teach a class on pâte à choux, which is cream puff dough used for eclairs and cream puffs. And um, that had serious PR issues because nobody knew that term. So I called it French pastry 101. And it was doing okay until all of a sudden it was like the best-selling class and I was thinking, what happened? And the students told me it was the Great British Baking Show. <laughs> um, they started showing it. All of a sudden, everybody wanted to do that. So, yeah, at the moment, my best-selling class is the Patashu class. Um, but, um, you know, it changes with the season. Some uh, Lucky for me, fish has always been popular. And that's because I love to teach fish. That's worked out really well. Um from my videos online, I guess my sous vide videos are pretty popular. And for some weird reason, one of my knife skills videos is very popular. It's not my favorite one. It's just like some, just another way to dice an onion. Uh, not even the most practical way. I don't know. But yeah, YouTube decides what YouTube decides. <laughs> I find that sometimes um, the core really really useful videos like claw grip they do just okay and some gimmicky thing does really great i found that too even on my videos that one of the videos i put out i think well this is you know really you know i think it's going to be popular because you know it answers some questions that i know a lot of people have out there but it doesn't do any very well but I'll do a comparison video, like two vacuum sealers. And that's like one of my <laughs> most pop, oh, yeah. most popular videos. You know. videos. Yes. Unboxings. <laughs> yeah. I just don't understand it. And you know, the ones like you said, where it's something where, you know, people are always asking and you know that there's a lot of demand and, and people should be watching it. It, it doesn't really do as well as some of the ones where you just scratch your head and go, how is this one doing better than when we're actually teaching somebody something they can use, you know? You know, what I think is tricky with YouTube algorithm for educational stuff is that uh, 
YouTube algorithm is optimized for sharing. Like if I watch this and I'm likely to share it with somebody, then um, stuff goes viral. And people are likely to share stuff that is not geeky because if I really want to learn claw grip, right? It's my thing. This is something I decided to want to learn. Why would I be sharing it with all my friends, right? They don't want to learn it. It's like my personal interest or my personal struggle. And so um, I find that really core educational material often does not go viral because of that. No, I agree with you. The ones that go viral are the, you know, the stupid videos, somebody, you know, doing something silly and then people share, look at this, this is funny. So that's like, that's, those are the ones that go viral. The ones you scratch your head and go, people are actually watching this stuff. Vitamix versus Blendtec, right? So many people are in the market for blenders. Those are the two big contenders, right? Lots of people. So it's very easy for me to watch that and go, oh, hey, Jane, you know how you are trying to buy a blender? Like, check this out, right? Um, but yes, I'm not likely to share a technique video. Right. I, I totally agree. Um, and it's different too, is what's popular, I'm sure in your classes at home than what's popular on YouTube. I'm sure there's a, a difference. Yeah, they're somewhat different. Yeah, absolutely. They're different. And that's one of the things I found even with just the different social media platforms, there's such a difference in what people will react to on Facebook than YouTube. And it's hard to get people from Facebook over to YouTube and YouTube over to Facebook. So it's, uh. You know, the questions that get asked on Facebook are different than the ones that, you know, get asked in the comments on YouTube. Oh, so. that's very interesting. Give me an example. Like, what is the, what what's a typical Facebook versus YouTube? Um, well, people will just, with Facebook, it's so easy to just go into a group and just ask a general question without doing any kind of searches. Now, I, I swear people don't even go to Google before they go into a Facebook group and just ask, how do I sue me a chicken, you know? It's, they'll just ask a really basic question like that, or what's the time and temp for, you know, sea bass instead of me, I would go to a, a guide that I, you know, have bookmarked that, I, that I get all my, you know, sous vide temp times and temps, but it's just funny how people will go and ask a general question that they could have found a lot easier. Cause usually what I'm doing running the group, I'll go Google it and, and give it to them. <laughs> you know, it's that old, you know, let me Google that for you type thing where, you know, well, that makes sense. I, yeah. I don't know what it is, <laughs> but it's just, it's very different. Yeah. The people that are on Facebook and the people on YouTube are very different. I mean, there's some that I have that carry over, but it's, it's really hard. I got over 7,000 members in the Facebook group and only like, you know, 2,300 on the YouTube channel. So. Yeah, I'm the other way around. I'm much more of a YouTube person. And um, when people say, oh, you should do stuff on Facebook, um, I have a Facebook page, but I'm not very active on it. I just, so, um, yeah, I think it's whether you want to run a group. Yeah. I think Facebook is about running a group. Yeah, the, I have a group and a page. And, of course, the page gets you know, not as much traction as the group does. There's more interaction in a group than a page. I have both. Like I said, I've got over 7,000 members of the group. My page, I just write at 3,000 that like the page. So even I can't even bring the people that are in the group over to like the page for some reason because they just like, they yeah, like the, yeah. they like the group aspect. Social media habits, I hear you. Yeah. yeah. So how often do you, you know, how many different classes do you teach at your home? 
ooh, how many different classes? I'd say I have a rotation of about 10 classes, and I teach twice a week. Um, and uh, they do, there are some core classes that stay around all the time knife skills, fish, meat, vegetables. And the other classes are somewhat seasonal. Like now that we're getting into fall, I'm doing more soups and sauces and beans, grains, uh, and baking classes like pizza and pastry. And in the summer, a whole bunch of those get dropped because we have such a short grilling season in Boston because of the weather that I try to teach a lot of grilling in the summer. So my normal fish class gets replaced by grilling fish and vegetables. And my normal meat class gets replaced by grilling meat and poultry. And uh, since I only get to do it for a few months, um, I teach a lot of grilling in the summer. Now, do you teach any smoking or barbecue? Absolutely. I am really a grilling person. I do not know much at all about smoking and barbecuing. I mean, I read about it, so I know in theory, but I don't actually have any practice doing those. Understood. And, and that's one thing. I think people in general that they're just occasional cooks, they kind of get, they lump everything, you know, grilling, barbecue, smoking all into one group. So, you know, they think a gas grill where you're grilling up some chicken is the mm -hmm. same thing as smoking, you know, chicken for, you know, four hours, but it, it's, it's really not, it's, it's a different, they're different methods combined, even though they're cooked on a similar, you know, grill or smoker outside. So that, that's one of the things I just, and, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, I like about meathead. He can, he lump it all together, but also separate it out. So teaching people that, Hey, even though, you know, it's a grill, you know, it's called a grill and you can smoke on it. I mean, there's, there's a difference between grilling hamburgers and smoking chicken or barbecuing, you know, a brisket or pork butt. I mean, it's a totally different method. You're doing low and slow, you know, versus hot and fast. And so let's talk about sous vide. When did yeah, you first get exposed to sous vide? When did you start feeling comfortable enough with it to start teaching? Um, I think I heard about it for the first time around 15 years ago or so. Long, long time ago. But back then, there was no equipment for home cooks. You know, there was the PolyScience circulator that was selling for more than $1,000. And um, because we had lots of geeky friends, um, I've heard of people who would... Um, take stuff from lab equipment, like lab equipment from MIT chemistry labs and bring it home and cook in it. And um, I was always too wimpy to do that because I felt like who knows what they put into this equipment. It's like from a chemistry lab, right? So um, I also heard of people rigging their slow cookers to do this. Uh, I started doing it with a pot and a thermometer and a Ziploc bag uh, on the stovetop, you know, just kind of the most primitive sous vide method you can imagine. Um, and it worked okay for very short things. Like if you need to uh, cook a halibut fillet, right, you just need 20 minutes. So um, actually, I was just on vacation in France, and um, I couldn't bring much stuff. I brought a knife and a board, and that's it. And I wanted to sous vide some uh, monkfish, and it worked. You know, I grabbed the pot. I had a thermometer with me 
And I just had to keep adjusting, you know, turn the pot on for a little bit, turn it off if it's too hot, add ice cubes. And for 20 minutes, I can do that. So that's how I started doing sous vide probably 12 years ago. And then eventually, um, there was this box. Oh, gosh, what was it called? Sous vide supreme that came out. That was the most affordable thing, which was still terribly expensive, like $500. And I bought that. But I found I didn't use it as much as I expected because it was so clunky. You know, do you remember those boxes? Have you ever had one? Oh, they they still sell those. Oh, and, I, can't um, imagine I, I never had I never had one, but I had a I had a um, I had an appliance that had a multiple multiple functions. So it was a rice cooker, and you could use it as a crock pot. But it also had a sous vide option. But I, I'm the same as you. It's they're kind of you know clunky and very limited as far as what you can do with them. Yeah. So, um, so once I got that, I started experimenting a little more with times and temperatures because I didn't have to stand there, you know, watching that pot constantly. Um, and as soon as Anova came out, I bought that and that has been fantastic because it's small, lightweight, very convenient. Um, and I'd say about two, three years ago, I got very into it just because it became very convenient and I had a Nova and I started playing around trying to find better ways to sear and better times and temperatures for different ingredients. Um, so, yeah, I can't say that I am um, the, oh, let's read everything kind of person. <laughs> I use it as one of my techniques, but I also do love reverse sear for meat. Um, and I love um, a grilling method that I use. It's kind of similar to reverse sear where you combine very high heat with very, very, very low heat. Um, so yeah, I have all those in my arsenal. Um, but Suvid is a wonderful method, and I feel that it's especially a wonderful method for beginner cooks, and they're often the ones who avoid it, thinking that it's a fancy restaurant thing, it's a fancy foodie gourmet thing. And I'm thinking, well, it's the fastest thing that you can learn that will produce great food. I find that it's more beginners who need it, not experienced cooks who need it. Yeah, and I'm finding kind of the opposite now, since the circulators have gotten, there's so many of them and so cheap now that people are starting to look at sous vide devices as like a George Foreman grill or a uh, Instapot. So they're not looking at it as an overall method. They're looking at it. And especially some of the new people, you know, well, I heard it's good for steaks and chicken and, and a couple different things, pork chops, but they don't really see, they scratch the surface of it and they don't really. And one of the things I try to do is show people, you can use it for a lot more things, but it definitely is not like you said, it's not something that you're going to, I'm not a big believer in sous vide everything all the time, but there are certain things that it yeah. can actually help and, and do a lot different that nothing else really can. I mean, there's, you know, I had this discussion um, last night with uh, somebody I was on their podcast and it's a barbecue podcast. And that was one of the questions he asked me, well, what can sous vide do that you can't do on a barbecue? And one of the things I said is you making a full packer, brisket medium rare and super tender <laughs> you know yes that's the that's, you, know, you can't yeah, do that yeah. or beef ribs i can make big thick dino beef ribs medium rare and super tender which you can't do that on a barbecue grill so you know what appliance i really wish would become more mainstream is uh cvap ovens 
it's like sous vide but without the right. bag it's steam ovens and i've seen restaurants use them a lot and what's so wonderful about them is that it is not like you don't have to bag each thing up like it's easier to just put bulk of stuff um but of course it depends on how big your oven is um but I really loved it for fish. I interned in this one restaurant where um, I asked them if I could come there for a couple of days to stash because I had the most incredible halibut. And when I asked the waiter, like, is this cooked sous vide? And he says, yes. And it turned out that it was not sous vide after all. It was actually a sieve-up oven. Um, at some point in New York City, I think health department had some sort of issue with sous vide, mostly due to their ignorance. And they banned it. And all the chefs ran out and got sieve-up ovens. And um, even though now it's totally fine, I think, to do sous vide in New York, uh, many of them ended up preferring sieve-up ovens to to the... Yeah, I, I, I think there are some smaller ones. They're more like the, um, you know, the tabletop, you know, convection type ovens that they're, they're they got the steam function i think breville has one there's a couple of them out there but um they, they get kind of pricey too but that's another thing well people say well that's another that's another thing i got to learn how to use that's another thing i need to buy and i have not even thought about buying one because i mean what use because what use is it to develop recipes for this right. thing that nobody has Right. Exactly. And that's kind of, you know, like I said, with, with sous vide, I think it's growing, it's going to grow in popularity once people get past the idea that it's just like, uh, you know, uh, it can only be used for one or two things. And that's kind of what I'm trying to teach people is that, you know, it's, it's an overall method. It's not just good to make a, a perfect medium rare steak from end to end. It's not just good for chicken breasts. You know, it's not, you know, there's so many other, other things that it does just because of the fact that it's, precision temperature cooking, you know, over a long period of time and, and how it's done, you know, where it can, you know, keep things moist because it's not drying out in an air oven, you know, <laughs> so it's, uh, and I think it's just going to, it's going to get more popular. Oh, definitely. Yes. I don't think sous vide is going to go away. So what other, what other things do you like uh, to teach in your class? I, I mean, you said your basic knife skills is pretty popular. And that's one of my, one of my favorite, uh, mm -hmm. you know, videos to watch is to watch your basic knife skills, because I think that's one of the things that people don't really think they need to know. <laughs> well, I think some of it is like, well, I've been chopping just fine. You know, anybody can cut up anything eventually, <laughs> right? Somehow. Um, and there is another, I think, um, psychological barrier there where people feel well, sure, it would be nice to chop efficiently, but I can never learn that. That's for professional cooks, and there's no way that I can learn to sharpen a knife. There's no way I can learn to do a claw grip. Um, and I think that's not true. I have seen uh, home cooks learn it. Now, it's not something you can learn just by watching a five-minute video. You're going to have to practice. And... Um, if, as I find that the people who get good at it are the ones who view it more like going to the gym. They don't 
uh, use their normal cooking as their practice. That's like a icing on the cake. But normal home cooking, you know, you're going to need one celery rope. You're going to need one carrot, right? You're not going to get good from one carrot. Um, I usually suggest after knife skills class is go buy yourself a bunch of celery, set a timer for 20 minutes and just slice and dice for 20 minutes. And don't worry what you're going to do with it. Just compost it. And a few of those sessions can make all the difference between not having knife skills and having knife skills. It's basically what you do in a restaurant. And you don't have to go work in a restaurant for a year. You can just do three 20-minute sessions of, I'm just going to work on my slicing. But then that's a skill you can take with you. And that's going to make you so much more efficient all the time. So I think you'll get that time back just as time savings from yeah i think it's just like anything you got to practice it you know practice a skill in order for it to be embedded in your mind and your muscle memory and all that to you know remember it when you when you're doing it so and it does it does help out a lot you know i I brought all that from when i worked at a restaurant some of the things that i did in the restaurant i bring to the home cook you know you can just like one of the things that people don't understand is uh, I, I par cook bacon in in the sous vide, and because it it it's, makes it easier to cook, at, you know, when you're frying it and all that. And that was one of the tricks that we learned. We didn't have sous vide back then in the restaurants. We did it in an oven. We took the whole cake. Okay, so tell me temperature and time. Um, What's the well, temperature for and sous vide bacon, I, I usually do like 140 degrees for about an hour and a half, and it just. Um, it just renders enough of the fat out of it so that uh, and when we used to do it in the oven, we'd put it in at like 200, 200 degrees for 45 minutes. You know, we would throw a whole case of bacon on, on the big uh, sheet pans and just let it. And all you're doing is you're just letting it, you know, par cook at a low, low temperature and render some of that fat out so that it's easier to cook when you're ready for it. And uh-huh. it, it ooh, ooh, I'm going to have to try that. And you're doing it in slices, Well, I right? usually like, I, I did it for the weekend because I was going to do bacon wrapped meatballs and I just did it in the whole pack. I vacuum sealed a whole pack of bacon and threw it in the sous vide and then cut it in and then wrapped it in the, in the meatballs. And what it does on things like that, it's like for shrimp, you want bacon wrapped shrimp and you want to throw on the barbecue. Usually you're, you're drying out your shrimp mm-hmm. waiting for the bacon to get crispy enough or you're, you're having really. So if you're, yeah. if your bacon's par cooked, you don't have to overcook your shrimp or your meatballs or whatever you're wrapping in bacon to waiting, you know, just waiting for that bacon to get crispy you know, you're either going to have crispy bacon or and and you know dried out whatever it's wrapped around, or you're going to have soggy bacon and good. You know, your meatballs or your shrimp are going to be nice and cooked. So, oh, I, yeah. I love that idea. Yeah, sometimes like coming up with um, clever ways to solve those problems is really awesome when you can like manipulate a part right. of the dish to make. Synchronize yeah, a and it's, better. And those are the kind of things we were talking about earlier, tips and tricks, but it's something that you can use, you know, the sous vide for to, you wouldn't be able to do it, you know, or people don't think about using it for that. But um, there's, um, there's some benefits mm-hmm. to doing things, just, you know, like that. Like I said, you, you especially, I, I, I bring, like I said, I bring a lot of the stuff that I used to use and tips and tricks from the restaurants at home. You know, people look at you funny because they'd never learned that before. Yeah, but they can, they can. I think now it's if I had to be alive during any period of time to learn about cooking, I think now is the time because it used to be that it was impossible to learn this stuff. Either you were in the industry or you were not. 
But nowadays, people are sharing all sorts of knowledge, and you can learn it without being right. And, it, and it's not hard once you can, you know, once you figure figure some stuff out. I mean, it's not really hard, and it's not a big mystery. Well, I was. It's really been great having you on. I really, uh, like I said, I really like watching your videos. I'm glad your your classes are going really well. Um, let's uh, everybody check out Helen's uh, YouTube channel, and it's uh, Helen's Kitchen Helen's Kitchen Cooking School, and then you can also find it on YouTube. Helen's Kitchen Cooking School. And, and then also yeah. on online, you have your own website that has your classes and all that. So if you're anywhere near the Boston area, that's where Helen's cooking classes are in person. You can get to meet her in person. And I have a video coming out about how to get better browning on sous vide stuff. It's a technique that I just figured out recently. I'm very excited about it. I feel like um, people have been asking me for a long time, how do you get sous vide stuff, have sous vide texture, but taste like real food? And I thought I was doing pretty good job with it, but um, this um, little addition to the bag, it's basically add my grilling glaze to the bag. Well, don't give away and, the secret. Um, Got to wait a little bit. <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah, that's true. So in about a month, the video will be post posted. So you can yeah. tell your listeners yeah. to go check it out. And I'll give you the link. I don't know for your website if you need a link. I'll, I'll also have it linked down there. below in the description of the podcast, how to get to uh, Helen's website and her YouTube channel as well. But check it out. She's got some really great videos. Like I said, there's a lot of good basic cooking videos that I think people can get a lot from because the way Helen teaches is uh, – very open and honest and she teaches like you know somebody who likes to learn which is uh, always a good thing for me it's not stringent it's very uh something you can everybody can relate to that's that's the one thing that i got from watching your videos is that i can relate with how you're teaching me because you're not you're not looking down on me <laughs> oh no 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 and if i ever get a smoker i'm gonna have to use darren's facebook page maybe i'll be one of those people asking questions well i don't just do smoking smoking too i mean i like to mix a little bit of everything in there but i like one of the basics is just showing people how they can mix the two because I think, you know, CV is low and slow and smoking is low and slow and, and they're both just a little bit different that they can complement each other. So I like to show people how things can complement each other and, and, and ex get them to explore and try new things. And that's, I know that's what you do because a lot of people that are taking your classes haven't, you know, cooked fish before or they're scared of it so you're trying to get them to do try new things as well so but uh thanks again for joining mm -hmm. me i really appreciate it i look forward to watching your videos and um maybe someday when i'm in boston i'll get to come by and do to one of your classes as well oh that'd be wonderful thank you so much darren it was a pleasure well, to be on your podcast thank you helen and uh maybe we'll do this again and down the road and we'll talk about some other stuff like maybe the international sous vide uh, conference that's coming up in august of next year maybe you can swing out to san francisco oh that'd be fun <laughs> <laughs> all right th thanks again helen i appreciate it and uh, i will see you on the next fire and water cooking podcast 
Well, thanks for following us on the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I want to thank Helen again for joining us. Make sure you check out her uh, website and the YouTube channel listed below. Make sure you check out Inkberg in the description as well. And make sure you follow us on Facebook. We have a great uh, giveaway going on for the month of September. On September 29th, I'll be giving away over $500 in prizes. So check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And I will see you again on the next Fire and Water Cooking Podcast.